You know, when we think about mafia, the mob, gangsters, what comes to your mind first? The godfather, wise guys, uh, good fellas maybe? Nothing could be further than the truth. Of course, there's always a little bit of truth in in Hollywood and in the movies and the things that we read in the papers about people like John Gotti, who was quite the public figure. But there's also a lot of other stories. And, And today we're going to hear some of these other stories from someone who calls himself the accidental gangster. And you'll find out why from my guest today, Ori Spado. Spado, Spado, I, I should have asked you that. Um, Spado. Spado, okay. This, you're listening to Imagine Publicity on air. And I'm your host, Delilah Jones from ImaginePublicity.com. And Ori Spado, welcome today. And how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Delilah. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm here in Beverly Hills, California, my home, looking at a gray sky. <laughs> well, and and I I've got to put it out there that this is the launch of your new book. Your you this is your first book, correct? This is my first book, and I've already began my second, yes. Oh, great, great. I didn't know you were were going on with the second one, but I'm sure as I read through this book, there are so many interesting stories that you've been able to tell about your life and your experiences. Um, But what I'd like to do first is let's cover a little bit of background. Let's find out where you came from, who you are. It's a very good question. Who am I? I ask myself that all the time. <laughs> I was born in upstate New York in a town called Rome. Um, my mom and dad, they had six children. I was the middle child. We grew up in a duplex home at 215 West Liberty Street uh, with my mother's uh, parents and brothers and sisters living next door. Uh, I had a good childhood. We didn't have much. My father uh, worked at Revere Copper and Brass, made $35 a week. But I had a good childhood. I can't complain about it. Uh, I never got to know who my grandmother and grandfather on my father's side, they were dead. Uh, they had already died previous to my birth. Well, I thought one of the things that was interesting was the fact you you didn't come up in the criminal life, so to speak, or, or surrounded by, you know, a lot of criminal element in, in your childhood like a lot of others that I've spoken to kind of grew right into becoming uh, mobsters. No, I did not. Uh, As a child, there was never much discussions about my uh, uh, grandfather, uh, Angelo, my my father's father. Uh, Actually, my mother's mother and father did not want them to marry my father because, as I later found out in life, that my grandfather came from Calabria, and he was a made man. He came, my grandfather on my father's side did come from the life. And, uh, but I learned that later on in life, uh, But as far as me, uh, I was I joined the army at 18 years old. Uh, ended up in uh, station in Hawaii. Uh, I had three good years in the military. Uh, I loved Hawaii, and I never. Wanted to be back in New York again, but I did end up back there after the service. 
And I ended well, up being... I'm sorry. After you after you got out of the service, you you were able to start several different businesses. Let's talk about what type of businesses and how those came about. Well, when I went back, I went back to Rome, New York, because my dad was my dad was ill, <clears throat> and I remember I had I I was actually engaged to be married to a girl here in Beverly Hills that I met in Hawaii while she was vacationing. And I had a jet <laughs> lined up here with Pan American Airlines, which most people probably don't know about them, but are never heard of. But when I got here, I was uh, out of the Army. I had one suit, a Botany 500, and... Uh, I was staying at the Hilton Hotel here in Beverly Hills, and she come over and she was crying. We had plans to get married. She was crying because her father did not want her to marry me, and if she were to marry me, he would disown her. She comes from a very heavily Jewish family, extremely wealthy. But she still wanted to get married. And I thought about it. And I says, name was Vicky. I said, Vicky, I can never provide you in anywhere near the way you're accustomed to living. I said, if we ran away and got married, I said, you'll never be able to live with yourself not talking to your father again. I said, let's go, you go home and let's forget about it. <coughs> and she left. It was the last time I ever saw her or heard from her. I called another girl that I met in Hawaii. She come over, spent the night, but I woke up in the middle of the night and put my uniform on and took my last military trip back to New York and my father says I should have never came back he said there's nothing here for you son California is the place I said well dad I came back and I wanted to be with you and uh, I said I'll tell you what I says, uh, get me a job at Revere and I will uh, save my money and I'll go back to California a few months and got a job he got me the job I actually failed the mechanical part of the test but my father was also one of the founders of the union at Revere so he had a lot of pull of course and he fixed it because mechanical aptitude I got none the intelligence part I passed and uh, I worked a night shift. After three weeks and three days, I did not save one nickel. Not a nickel. When I got paid on a Friday and I had my two days off, I went out and partied and spent it all. And from there, I had other jobs until I got into the insurance business. And I became an agent with the Prudential Insurance Company. And it happened to be, I actually loved it. I loved selling insurance. I was really good at it. And it was a love of my life, I gotta be honest with you. And I had no idea that in the 60s, <coughs> there was an office with 16 other agents, and, I was being the highest paid agent there when I was single then. That was before I got married. I didn't realize it. I was making $500 a week when an average income was a buck twenty-five, buck fifty. And from there, I uh, I was a leading agent. I was a member of the Million Dollar Roundtable, and. I was really, really good at it. And from there, then I 
came back to California with my wife and my daughter. And I uh, came to California. And it didn't work out because I owned a lot of property with my cousin. Uh, and the bills weren't being paid, so I had to go back to New York. I owed out over a million dollars. And I became a general agent with a company called the Franklin United Life Insurance Company out of Garden City, Long Island. And they got me into what's called credit life and accident health insurance on the financing of loans with automobile dealers. But I only had Oneida and Onondaga counties in upstate New York. And I developed a concept called the Ori Agency, the Ori concept, where how I trained, and I was one of the pioneers in the way automobiles are sold today, <laughs> where when you go into a dealership, it's called the TO system, where you turn it over to a finance manager, or you might call them a manager, or they have a lot of different names today. And I wanted to expand, but I couldn't. George had other agents in the other areas. And there was one other company that had no representation. It was a company called People's Home Federal out of Battle Creek, Michigan. And I built up, I became an agent for them. I was doing several million dollars a year. And... Uh, I was going to expand my business on a nationwide uh, <clears throat> uh, enterprise. And how I came about that was my cousin, Jimmy, came to me one day and wanted me to review contracts for him that he was going to become a Century 21 agent. So I was in my office reviewing his contract when a light bulb went out. This is how I'm able to go nationwide because each state has different insurance regulations. So my concept was to take the Ori concept and get agents in each other state. I put together a business plan and needed money. <coughs> and my friend Frank Russo brought me to Ralph Serpy and Dino De Laurentiis. Dino De Laurentiis was a big film producer, and Ralph was with him. And I, would, I needed $12 million to do this back in those days. And as I was traveling around, <coughs> I had an agent named Ginger Generale. <coughs> he was making 100 grand a year with me back in those days. And he was dating my secretary. And while I was gone, I was out here in Los Angeles. He found out through my accountant when they got drunk of the deal that I had with the insurance company out of Michigan. I was allowed the use of the premiums to grow my business, which back in those days was a fairly normal thing. You got to remember, here I was, come from nothing. Now I'm doing millions of dollars a year with this insurance company, and you know there's only certain amounts of money that were uh, commissions that were able to pay by law. In each state, it's different, and they would pay me extra money in cash when they would invite me to Battle Creek, Michigan. And Jim found out, and he tried to take over my agency. And he became the first guy who really became an informant against me. Here I am in a legitimate business. And I, I owned a condo in Florida. This is like my D-Day. I was also dating my, who became my second wife. Oh, she was uh, from out here in San Francisco. My wife, my kids, and my mother were all at the condo in Florida. It was winter time. 
side, I had two businesses plus the real estate business, making a lot of money. Me, my wife, never had to worry again. What's better than that there? And I earned it all, and I did it all. So what happened next? I mean, you it sounds like, you know, you're sitting on cloud nine. You're making more money than you ever thought you would. You've got a successful business, your family. Everything looks like the perfect American dream has come true for you. So what happened next? How did how did this all turn about for you? This turned out into a disaster. I'll never forget flying into Fort Lauderdale. My wife, Antoinette, picked me up at the airport. And I explained to her that I wanted a divorce. Uh, I've been seeing somebody else. I explained to her financially, neither one of us ever got to worry again. And uh, we could drive to the condo. She went into the bedroom crying. I'm looking out my patio window, at, uh, and I see my mother on the beach with my children, and my phone rings. It was my account. He says, Dick Leamy called, said he's coming in tomorrow to close us up. I said, what are you talking about, close us up? He said, but he wants to talk to you. He's at the airport near uh, LaGuardia. I called Dick. I said, Dick, what's going on? He said, Ori, generally found out about the deal that you have with us. At that time, I owed them my monthly premium was $385,000. He said, can you pay it back? Money was tight. I owed the bank a million dollars, which was the limit at that particular bank in Utica. I said, let me see, Dick. Don't come, don't close me up yet. I flew back. I had my meeting. I told Frank Russo, uh, who was my lawyer and my friend, and I had the uh, vice president of the Bank of Utica meet me in my office. I sat there, and Bob Spears from the Bank of Utica said, Ori, uh, we can't loan you any more money. And I looked at Frank. I said, what's the worst thing could happen? He said, you can go to prison. I couldn't believe it. Prison. And uh, I, uh, he says, I said, will you represent me? Frank was older. He said, oh, it would be too big of a case for me to handle I recommend you hire Louis Brindisi. He set it up the next day. Met with Louis Brindisi. I gave him twenty-five grand. The bank of Utica even paid twenty-five, another twenty-five grand. And I, uh, long story short, four and a half years went by. When nothing happened, New York State Grand Jury found insufficient evidence to indict me. Uh, so you came out of this indictment, but were not sentenced or convicted or anything. So uh, I got five years probation. Oh, okay. But, you know, my son asked me a question, my son Anthony. What was the pivotal period of my life? And he said, Dad, it's when you lost your insurance license. And that was it, because part of the deal was I lost my insurance license. <clears throat> I lost my ability to earn an income. Oh, and in the yeah. meantime, everything I had was gone. I had nothing. I was living out here in California, doing this and that, and... Uh, Boy, I got into a long story here. Uh, so in, it was this about the time that you were introduced to Sonny Frangese? I was in, introduced to Sonny before this. 
I mentioned that Jim Generali, when I was still trying to sell the business and come up with the money to be even with the insurance company, Jim was still calling me, and he's asking me questions on the phone, like, uh, you know, and he says, how's your friend Maya Lansky doing? How's your friend Sonny Frances doing? And I would say to him, who are these guys? I don't know who they are. I felt funny. I knew something. I knew it. I knew he was being wired up. The phone was, call was being recorded. I just knew it. You know what I mean? For some reason, my gut instinct was able to tell me those things. And it's been my gut instinct that kept me alive all these years. <clears throat> and my ability to talk. And, uh, You know, if they were able to make an organized crime case out of it in those days, they would have. Now that I understand and I know how the government works. But, as I said, I loved selling insurance. I was a natural for it. I understand people. And selling is 98% understanding human beings, 2% product knowledge. And I had that down pat. So, when we went to court and I got five years probation, I remember my lawyer telling the judge, Mr. Spader can go either way. And either legit or illegal. I went illegal. I had no license. I'm not the kind of guy who's going to go out and get a job and make a couple hundred dollars a week and get a paycheck and have a boss. I just wasn't that kind of guy. The rest is history. So um, <laughs> just for just for the audience knowledge, um, explain who Sonny was, or he still is. <laughs> Sonny Franchise is 102 years old today. He's right. been the boss. Colombo crime family. Very dear friend of mine. It's got to be close to 50 years now. I've been saying 40. As I think back, I'm going to be 75 next month. So probably 45 to 50 years, Sonny and I have been friends, and we still talk. I'll call him up once a month. Once every couple of weeks, we have a conversation. I like Sonny. What he's done in his life, that's his business, not mine. But he and, was and a being that he was involved with the Colombo crime family, you never got that far with, with becoming a made man or, or you know, getting into um, the life, as they say, like he was, right? No, no way. You got to remember there was Sonny Franchise in New York, but... I was out here in Los Angeles. I was doing my thing, doing my thing in Hollywood through Dino, Lee De Laurentiis, and Ralph Serpy. I met other people in the entertainment business. I became known as a Hollywood fixer, uh, taking care of different problems uh, in, in Hollywood. Uh, Let's talk about some of those things. Let's talk about how you became known as the mob boss of Hollywood and how how you fix things for people and what kind of things you had to fix? Oh, there'd be various things. The people, uh, big names getting a divorce, there'd be a big problem in the newspapers, uh, having to sit down with them and mediate it. Uh, they listened to me for some reason. Uh, <clears throat> somebody owed a couple million dollars uh, from uh, one of the agencies, wasn't get paid. Because the producers were holding up the money, uh, I would have to meet with the producers and uh, come to a satisfying resolution, which I did. Uh, there was another example I used in a book where uh, a famous model uh, was being stalked and how I handled that situation. Uh you know what? It was like second nature to me. I can't explain it really well. I never considered myself the mild boss of Hollywood. 
my closest friend out here in Los Angeles was Jimmy Kachi, who happened to be the underboss of the crime family here in Los Angeles, and he was the boss of Palm Springs. And he and I were very close. <coughs> Jimmy wanted to make me out here. I would not accept it. I didn't want to be my man. And then back in New York, Sonny would yell. And I mean, there was like a war between him and Jimmy, who didn't even know each other, of who's trying to claim me. And I didn't want to be claimed by nobody. I'm a renegade. I'm my own guy. I never, never thought in my head that I'm a member or an associate of the Colombo crime family. And I never considered myself the mob boss of Hollywood. It was the perception that other people thought of me. It's the words. It's out in nightclubs. When I would walk into a nightclub or a restaurant, the people whispering, saying, that's the mob boss of Hollywood. I never proclaimed that. Perhaps it's the way I carry myself with the ability to think that I was able to accomplish and do uh I was able to dispatch people any place in the world. As my judge says at one of my bail hearings, anybody with the ability to dispatch people anywhere in the world is a violent man to me. Bell refused. <laughs> Denied. Mm. Well, did you did you have to use threats or did you have to um, – how, how did you negotiate some of these fixes that you did? Uh, everything that I fixed, I done without a gun because I feel that the brain is much stronger and more powerful than any gun if used properly. And I'll go back to what I said: understanding. Ninety life is ninety-eight percent understanding human beings understanding people. Everybody is different. Everybody thinks different. You had to come up with a solution that both parties are happy with. It's like having a sit-down. You've heard of a sit-down. Well, oh, yes. you know, there's three sides to every story. Yours, mine, and the truth. I had to handle a sit-down in Florida, in West Palm Beach, many years ago. And it was during the time of the Columbus War. Uh, a guy named Red was supposed to come down. They called me up. said, oh, you got to handle it. Well, I had two Columbus guys from Fort Lauderdale, and I had a guy that happened to be a friend of mine from Utica, New York, who robbed somebody that he should not have robbed, and I had to sit them all down and listen to both sides of the story. And when I got through, I had, I found out that it was my friend who was wrong. So I told my friend, every Friday, I want you to go to that guy's restaurant. The guy owned a big primary place in Palm Beach, Florida. I said, you're to go there. If you had a good week, you give him a couple grand. I said, if you made no money, you give him 20 bucks. But I want you there every Friday paying him something until that $15,000 is paid back. And that's what happened. So you were quite the negotiator. When, that's I think it. that's a good word for it. You were able to read people very well and negotiate the best deal for both parties. That's what, you know, everybody's got to be happy. If something's one-sided, you got somebody who's going to be angry. Both well, parties got to walk away from that table happy. Look, at, I could have made a, a worse decision at that table that this guy was wrong and maybe he had they had to do something bad to him. You know, I made him every Friday. If he didn't make any money, he had to go there and give the guy $20. 
the guy who was in the business, he was in the jewelry business. He'd make a score this week or this month. And, you know, when you're in the business, you make a score. It's not like you make a score every day. It's not like we get paid on Fridays. We don't. Right. There's no coming. Well, let's let's talk a bit. There's there's a part in the book that you talk about cable boxes in the L.A. City Jail, and uh, tell us about that story. That was that was quite the thing. You know that is here again. It's a story that got run in Los Angeles. I don't know how, but a lot of people knew me as the guy who set up the robbery of cable boxes. How it happened was my dear friend Jerry Zimmerman, who was also deceased, Jerry and I made a lot of money together. Jerry lived way out in the valley. I live here in Beverly Hill. And Jerry had a rule. He says, he says when I call you, he said, you could believe there will be an envelope for you. And he would never have me drive to the valley without there being an envelope. Meaning somebody, Jerry just ran into people, had problems, I fixed them. And he called me up to meet him about, there were a couple of guys out of Florida looking for cable boxes. Why? I didn't know nothing about cable boxes except for the one that was in my apartment. And so I started asking people. And I had a friend named Kevin McCarthy, he was a young kid. Uh, he used to, his business was, you know, when you see cars that are blown up and overturned in the uh, in movies, that's what Kevin used to do. He was the youngest at it. And he had a big semi-truck, and there was the L.A. City Jail where they, uh, it was closed, and they used it to shoot films sometimes. There are a lot of them. And with a Sunday morning, his wife called me and said, Kevin found Kevin cable boxes. I said, have him take them, whatever he can get out of there, and bring them to your home tonight. And which he did. And we got, and he had them on the side of his home. Jerry and I met him there. And I didn't know, you know, they were all different, different model numbers. So we moved into our warehouse out in the valley. The guys from Florida came out. They selected the the, the model numbers they wanted. Gave us 15 grand. Now I know that behind those bars at the LA City Jail are sitting a couple million dollars more of them. How am I going to get these out of there? So I came up with a way that we would film something there. And I got some gal to go get the license to film there in her name. And we put, I uh, got a producer that actually used to produce porn, film, porn films. <laughs> and he was a drinker, unfortunately. And uh, he put together a nice cast and crew. I had to I, I had the food wagon there. We had like 300 people. It cost me over 40 grand to put this thing together. Don't think that the gangsters, like any other business, you need to make an investment in what you're doing. And uh, the guys from Florida were here. I had them in uh, one hotel. I was in another hotel, and Jerry Zimmerman uh, was uh, someplace else. We had four trucks lined up. Uh, this, I told the producer via telephone, he didn't know my name, uh, I told him, you shut that set down at midnight. And then I had smoke screens. My guy in the entertainment business uh, who did the special effects and all that there, he had these smoke screens. So these actors and everybody are working, and there's a smoke screen, and they don't know what's going on behind them, but I had guys taking the cable boxes that we wanted out of there, getting them ready to move out. It was on the third floor. And uh, midnight comes. 
producer's drinking, he keeps shooting. I'm yelling, I'm yelling and yelling. 4 a.m. in the morning, he stopped shooting. I got two hours. I got to get these up before the sun comes up. I had four trucks lined up, three of the drivers left. They got one truck load. We had a place, a warehouse at the airport. My guys had their truck ready. And then when they went through them, I think I got like $44,000 back. Still didn't get the cable boxes because that producer messed up. So, I had a guy on a motorcycle. We had a jury was at the Raleigh Studios over on Santa Monica Boulevard with all the guys we had worker. Everybody's got to be paid. So I'm dishing money out, paying everybody, and now I still got the cable boxes there. And in my head, how am I going to get them? I mean, I know that I can make $2 million over here. This is going to be a dream score. A friend of mine got out of prison named Clarence. Called me up. I told him I was looking for cable, but I needed a way to get these cable boxes. And he told me he met the vice president of a cable company out in the valley. I should set up a meeting with him. Sets up a meeting at a restaurant in Burbank. Drive out and meet the guy. We talk, and Clarence leaves immediately after he makes the introduction. Now, back in those days, cable boxes, before cable companies all became big, my guys in Florida, they had a place as big as a, larger than a football field for cable boxes and how they got their customers and so forth. They were really good guys. And I came up with another way if I'm going to rob these boxes. I need a court order to transfer from the L.A. City Jail to another court jail in St. Pedro. Of course, they never were going to get to St. Pedro. But my second meeting with this guy, as soon as this guy found out who I was, I didn't realize this guy was a pedophile and they had charges on him. So he was working his pedophile case off by becoming an informant against me and wearing a wire. And now I find out that there was a detective, because the other end of the jail was a boxing gym for uh, kids in the gangs. And he was having guys steal cable boxes one or two at a time and selling them on the streets. And they went for 250 bucks, so you didn't have to pay for cable. And uh, so, where was I? So you you got the cable boxes out of there? Every time time I talk into this guy about the cable boxes, I keep talking about the dirty cop, and I keep mentioning this cop's name. You got me out. This guy's wired up. I don't know who you wired up, but I keep mentioning. I said this dirty cop, and I mention his name. So he comes. We had a meeting. He said he's got. The court order. I'm going to tell you what. He had it. It would look very impressive. And he had a schedule on the Friday. So we can't do a Friday. You got to change the date. It's got to be Monday. He gets up and he says, okay, I'll get it done. And he leaves. Now, this is early afternoon. It's like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So he leaves. I go out the parking lot to get in my car. My car's the only one in the parking lot. I bend over to put the key in, and then I hear these cars coming from all sides. 
I look up, they're all in their private cars, no police cars. <clears throat> I threw the envelope with a quarter order under my car. One car pulls up. I almost want to say it was a Ford Mustang. It was a Ford something or other, I think. Cop gets out, puts the cuffs on me, and puts me in the front seat of his car. Doesn't say I'm arrested. And then he looks at the other cops and he says, you know, you guys know what to do. And now he's driving away. I don't say a word. You never say a word when your cops pick you up. You don't talk to them. And he's driving, he's driving. And next thing he pulls into Griffith Park. I go, what the freak? Now when they gets into Griffith Park, now he goes on a dirt road up a hill. By this time, I'm talking to myself. I said, oh, you got to say something. And I says, uh, officer, excuse me, I said, but I don't know of any police precinct here. Shut up, you guinea bastard. Do you know who I am? I says, I have no idea. He says, I'm, and he gives his name. You've been blabbering my mouth all over, my name all over the wire. I says, you shouldn't have had the guy wired up. <laughs> At that point, I knew I was a dead man. There's no other reason for me to be in a car with a detective. He's going to bury me there. But one cop at the scene messed up and went over the radio and said, we have Ori Spadel. And Sue, Steve Sue and Dave Bannister from, as most people know it, as the Goon Squad, uh, from the LAPD Organized Crime Task Force. They heard my name. They said, you get Spadel down to Parker Center right away. They called the cop. He got pissed. He threw his phone down. Because now they knew that they had me. And I'm going to tell you something. You never saw a guy so happy to be driven to a police station as I was that day. Because I was alive. I can only imagine. <laughs> and... That's, uh, you know, when I say the LAPDOIC, that's the goon squad, the, you know, Sean Penn did a movie on the gangster squad. Right. Uh, yeah, really happens. Well, so after after this little caper, what happened next? I mean, at some point you were you were indicted on RICO charges, correct? Correct. And... Spent some time in prison? Yes, I did. I was sentenced to 62 months. And uh, I had a hell of a case. I never dreamed. I, I thought I'd be arrested someday. I never thought I'd be involved in a RICO case and on a Colombo thing. But 1997, there's an FBI agent. They tried to get me to become an informant, and I would not. And he said, "I'm going to." He knew I was the guy behind the cable box thing, but he couldn't prove it. He said, "I'm going to see the day that you're chained, shackled, put on Con Air, and brought to Brooklyn." 1997, that was. In 2008, he made it a reality, and I was arrested. Chain, shackle, put on Con Air, and brought to Brooklyn. And wouldn't you say that was uh, another pivotal point in your life? Pivotal in which way? Well, you you kind of had a different outlook when you got out, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. You know... We had over 500 CDs on our discovery 
seven hours each. My co-defendant Chris and I would go down every morning when they allowed us to listen to our discovery. And <coughs> I got to tell you, I listened to most of them. And I heard all my friends in New York, I'm not even there, I'm out here in California, and they're talking about me. They're already spado, he's got this big, beautiful apartment, he drives a brand new lecture, you walk around Beverly Hills, everybody knows him, how come he's not paying up? And then the rule, you don't pay up on legal monies that you earn. You don't pay up on the legitimate, but I never paid up to nobody. I never done that. I paid people who were involved with me in the capers that I'd done. They would get paid, but I never... You know, Jimmy, Kashi, and I, if we went out and we made money, we split it 50-50. He was the underboss out here. And Jimmy was a real guy, a serious guy. He was a sunny franchise of the West Coast, you know what I mean? So I made you, a lot of money. So after all of this, and I've got to tell people out there listening today, there, this is just part of the story there are so many other things that have gone on in your life and so many other stories and and you to me you're kind of the master storyteller you you tell a great story and it just so happens that it's all true um so every word is the truth exactly exactly and that, that does come out in your book. all right every word is a lie I, yeah, I guess it's a different perspective, right? Totally. Well, we're we're running out of time here today, Ori, and I I just can't tell you what what an honor it's been to to launch this book with you, the accidental gangster, and you obviously fell into this life, and and not even being in the life. But you fell into it very accidentally. I think had you been able to continue being an insurance salesman and being successful at it, your life may have turned out differently, do you think? If they never took my insurance license, I guarantee you that I'd be a very wealthy man living off my renewals or I would have became a vice president of a company someplace. So it just goes to show us it goes to show us how how life tends to throw us curveballs occasionally and we we make those turns in life whether it's from one way to another way and back again but we just kind of keep on going and doing the best we can. So t- let's tell people where can they buy this book. They can go on Amazon, go to Barnes and Noble or it should be available in most bookstores, uh, but I know it's up there on Amazon right now, and I know it's at Barnes & Noble. Great. Do you have any plans for some, maybe some local appearances or book signings? Uh, I might do a book signing at the Grove here in Los Angeles and at the Amazon bookstore and Century City, and uh, they want me for a give a talk and a book signing at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas, which more than likely will I spoke to the gentleman yesterday be the end of January uh, or February. Otherwise, I unless there's an event, I'll go to an event, but I'm not going to be going around the country signing books. Uh, well, people would like and they want an autograph copy, uh, they could send me the book, I'll autograph it and send it back. But they must send me an envelope postage paid to return it. Gotcha. We don't pay for anything. <laughs> we don't pay. <laughs> we don't pay. I love that. Um, so it, also your website it's the accidental tourist or accidental. www.theaccidentalgangster.com. 
I'll get it right. I'll get it right. I, I'm looking right at it and saying something different. I'm old too. Anyway, oh, we do so that. You, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's published by Wild Blue Press. You can also get copies through Wild Blue Press if you like. Um, it's. I, I was just thrilled through the whole book. Like I said, there's so many other stories about you and the things that you've done in your life, and it's just been an amazing life. And, you know, hopefully you will continue on for many, many more years having the the time of your life. And it, it's been an honor, Ori. Thank you so much for coming on today. And I, will... uh, I thank you very much uh, for having me on. I hope I wasn't a bore. <laughs> Not at all. Not at but all. I am working on my second book. My second book is My Journey Through the Judicial System. Oh, this now book, that'll be interesting. This book is going to be quite different because I'm going to give my, you know, the U.S. Constitution. If you read it, in my head, it's how you interpret it. And everybody who reads it interprets it a little bit differently. It would be my interpretation, how and why I feel I became a target to the Organized Crime Task Force and how I became what they call an organized crime guy. Wow. Well, I look forward to that, and, and we will do this again when that book comes out, all right? Is that a date? Thank you, Zelaya. You have a wonderful day. You too, Ori. And everyone oh. else out there listening, go to AmazonWildBluePress.com or Barnes & Noble. or you, you can ask for the accidental gangster at your local bookstores, and they can order it in for you. As you go out there in this world, it's it's a big and bad world sometimes. There's an awful lot of good. But there's one thing I'd like to make you all do. And and do myself, and, and I know Ori's the same thing. And go out there and be kind to each other. That's the whole key. We live in a rough world, Delilah. You bet, Ori. It don't hurt to be 